Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, we are continuing the forensic psych topic of a review of the research on the incel community. All right, everyone, we are back, ready to go, Dr. Scott, back at it. Yes, more research, <laughs> more case studies. Yes, so we are back with more in-cell rich literature reviews for you today. Last episode, we kind of took you through the evolution from the very beginning of what was available, what was out there, how the research community gathered data initially, and then really started getting into what some of the comparisons studies and academic research was able to do as far as looking at especially mental health concerns and relational concerns. So looking at issues of connectedness and loneliness and really as like mating psychology as the researcher William Costello coined it. So yes. super interesting stuff. We are going to kind of take a springboard from where we left last episode and looking at like, what does this all mean for safety concerns, for dangerousness? We left off really talking about, especially with the case study, looking at threat assessment and how that's very tricky, right? Yes. So you can have some systems in place. You can have people seeing something, saying something. And again, as much as we would love to, we cannot predict human behavior. We are just going to scrape the surface today with what people are thinking about and observing when it comes to how we label the incel community and what danger they pose. And I think when we ended last week, we said, look, this is literally a handful of people, but what does it mean and how can we learn from it and how can we prevent these attacks to the best of our abilities? So with that, we're going to just jump back in. Right. So we ended last week with the brief case study out of the UK that was, you know, all of these, anything that's extremist, anything that results in the death of a person or, or a number of individuals is, is horribly tragic. This one was particularly interesting because the UK has rigorous, understandably and necessarily rigorous gun control laws. And yet this individual who engaged in this behavior was, he had legal access to a weapon. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to last week's, please go back and listen to it, as well as, as we've said before, our episode from 2018, which gives you sort of the vocabulary to understand this movement, because we're in these two episodes, we're just talking about the latest research rather than sort of the language that is used in understanding this movement. So from the research paper, Involuntary Celibacy, Incel Phenomenon, the latest generation of terrorism, authors provide the following information. The incel phenomenon is a unique form of terrorism that differs significantly from previous waves of terrorism. So they differentiate it from anarchism, anti-colonialism, left-wing extremism, and religious attempts at extremism. So unlike these well-understood forms of terrorism, the incel phenomenon is generally characterized by this very, very distinct and separate ideology that bears no resemblance to any of the ones before. Additionally, this paper reveals and asserts that the incel phenomenon is the only form of terrorism that does not directly target the state entity. Very interesting. I think that there's probably some overlap in mm -hmm. ideology and extreme belief systems. Oh, yeah. But 
it is very distinctly carved out here as the only form of terrorism that doesn't directly target the state. Very important for any efforts at threat assessment. Of course, there's going to be academics who disagree, which we love disagreement because disagreement leads to more conversation. So authors Ryan, Dury, Smith, and Zimmerman will point out that the U.S. State Department's definition of terrorism includes, quote, premeditated, politically motivated violence perpetrated against non-combatant targets by subnational groups or clandestine agents. So really, incel violence can meet all of these criteria in spite of the fact that incels have not yet formed organized violent groups or cells that have been revealed. I'll just say that we know of. Yeah. So already we're seeing kind of a smattering of different opinions about yeah. definition of what terrorist organizations or cells can be and whether or not people from a variety of backgrounds, we're looking at mostly like government researchers up to this point of how they feel that incels fit into to that or not. So they go on to say that it's very crucial that you recognize incel attacks as a form of terrorism and that necessary steps are taken to explore that underlying ideology that's going to be the driver of this violent extremism. And then they go on to say that by doing so, they can work towards preventing future attacks and protecting innocent civilians from harm. So our colleague, Namikates, really explored this controversial ideology known within the incel community as Black pill. And she noted that the term itself is misleading because there's really no absolutely clear ideological pursuit or prescribed action that is associated distinctly with black pill terminology. As we've discussed before, black pill ideology in contrast to red pill or blue pill ideology is characterized by very misogynistic and often pretty violent speech that promotes what's called genetic determinism and the existence of, as well as the desire for an alternate social hierarchy. I mean, there are some extremists within the incel community that have proposed that the government should provide them with girlfriends, which right. would be a radical, you know, a, a just- Would it? Would it? No, I'm just kidding. You, you don't say. <laughs> really? I know that's, I think for our listeners, that's probably would be considered radical, maybe for some innocent. I've probably, I've probably aged out as one of the people that would be assigned. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're looking pretty good, but, you know, I don't want to objectify you. Oh, thank you. But there's the belief then that the current hierarchy is against us. And then that we need to reestablish hierarchy in a form that suits us as well. So it's very clear that feminism and modernity is very often targeted by incel. So going back to what they would consider a more traditional gender roles, which is really hilarious because as anthropologists will tell you, it's like that's actually never really been a thing. Like it's, <laughs> yes, there have been periods where gender roles have been very strictly defined, but there's just as many examples throughout cultures around the world where yeah. that's not so much been the case. In terms of violent attacks, Nama points out the attackers often engage with the incel community online, but that the majority do not strongly support that violent rhetoric of the black pill ideology. Rather, they will share some similar grievances and they may have a stronger correlation with other mass murder events like the Columbine shootings. So despite the healthy and violent nature of these forums, Nama argues that the threat posed by the incel community is often really exaggerated. And it's exaggerated by media. And then she goes on to emphasize that there's no online to offline coordination within the community. When I read that, 
I mm. thought that that just was so fascinating because like when you read something that's new, that's been introduced, it makes you immediately go back and look at all the existing research. And that is an incredibly important point to make yeah. that there's no online to offline coordination within the community. And that so far there's been no pursuit of an actual revolutionary agenda. So that goes back to our earlier point right. about attacks against the state, right? Yep. So instead, the community primarily exists as a network for socially isolated individuals. Nama goes on to state that the positive avenues of inclusion for the incel community should be examined and pursued rather than taking a continuous tact of demonizing and further marginalizing this community that already feels that they are victimized. She makes a really great point that misogyny has always had a significant overlap within the ideology of those who feel socially isolated and those that are found to be violent individuals and that this should be taken into account when trying to understand these types of attacks. I just need to take a moment and talk about what a girl academic brain crush I have on Nama because- I get it, I get it. <laughs> this is, you guys, this is a woman who started a podcast with this very niche interest that was able to break through and still creates content. You know, she started a little bit after we did. Yeah. And has now been published in more academic journals than I have in the last few years. And I'm just like, you know, not only the study we cited last week where she teamed up with these organizations and, and researchers, but this paper that we're citing from is just her. And it, it's almost an opinion piece, but it's in an academic journal and it's what everything she's learned and her opinions based on that. And I just, I think it's amazing. I think we should have her on a live stream just to talk about like what she thinks about all of this and how it's gone for her. I mean, what a yeah. wild story. I think it's incredibly impressive and I'm, I'm humbled by it because here's someone who comes from... I mean, she certainly has an academic background and a fine arts background. I would go as far as to opine myself that Nama's background in the arts mm. made her absolutely perfect for creating what we would call therapeutic alliance mm. with these individuals in order to really get them to open up. And I think we have to say, like you and I are in the position where we have to call it that she is giving her opinion, but the only difference is, is she doesn't have a bunch of letters after her her name. She's self-educated totally, yeah. in all of yeah. this research. And I just give enormous props for that. I just think it's amazing. Well, Nama, we're giving you an honorary doctorate from LA, not so confidential university. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> However, jumping off from the research that you just cited, I think it's also interesting to note that the COVID pandemic played into the emergence of a particular form of violence against women that utilized online forums. In research conducted by Mittal and Singh in 2020 out of India, the image-based discussion board, Anon IB, an extremely disturbing offshoot of revenge porn, developed from members of the incel community. So Anon IB was originally created as a platform for anonymous image sharing, how could that go wrong? Right. How, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong here? I, I mean, there are aspects of Indian culture that have noted problematic issues within gender roles, male role norms, and caste challenges. I mean, it's yes. on Quora, there are really jarring accounts of women traveling alone in India and what they deal with that are really quite alarming. Yeah. I have friends that are Indian that would not go back by themselves with their families as women. Yeah. 
just anecdotal, but just to note. So with this anonymous image sharing, it became a hotbed for revenge porn and incel activity. And despite being shut down by Dutch police in April 2018, the site consistently found loopholes to restart itself, and particularly during the pandemic. Registered users of the site were able to post headshots and candidates of women and then ask for quote unquote wins, which translates into basically a request for nude photos of that woman who was chosen. The site being location-based had users often requesting photos of women in their surrounding areas so they could target that specifically. A non-IB has even reached an international audience with threads from the University of Georgia and Tbilisi, Georgia. While these do not fit the description of our concerns for mass extremist events perpetrated by one egged on individual, here is evidence of a real coordinated effort. So take it as you will, like it's not the coordinated mass attack of the century or anything, but but it's, it's violence, right? It's, it's a different type of violence. There it's you like go. it's there like the the discovery of the guys like another what was it? They just discovered somebody at, at Disneyland that was doing the upskirt yes. photos. You know, yes. like this is a form of violence. And so now we're seeing the emergence of there is a coordinated effort for impinging on the rights of people. And then especially when you're you're not just doing it behind the safety of a computer screen, but you're also also geolocated, yes. you're geotagging this entire thing. That adds an incredible level of dangerousness. Yeah, you're crowdsourcing right. violations of, of all sorts. So Toronto researcher Alex Painter, in his paper, rather directly titled, Incel Violence Misogynists Are a Special Kind of Stupid, <laughs> he takes, I gotta, I, I just, I love the the, the two cheeky titles know, that we've had today. It's I know, pretty great. I saw this, when I pulled this, I was like, there's no way my dissertation chair would let me title something that. I know. Well, it's a paper, so we don't know. Might, yeah, it might have been, yeah. you know, something, not, not dissertation, but he takes an exploratory approach into his understanding and also his interpretations of the motivations for violence that is perpetrated by this extremely small subgroup of the incel community. And he focused on three aggregates, which are, again, wonderfully thought out. He points out that cognitive evolution and the popular incel methodology of citing or referring to Darwinian sexual selection and natural selection is used often as justification for their actions. Mm. So that's very important to note. And then that there is a possible link between incel violence and white supremacist violence, very problematic. Yeah. And then lastly, how to label inceldom, like either as a hate group or a terrorist organization. And Painter goes on to focus his research on case studies that included the 2018 Toronto van attack, the 2014 Vista massacre and the 1999 Columbine shooting, as well as the 1989 Ecole Polytechnique massacre to make the argument that incel violence is in fact an epidemic and that incel violence is indeed a terrorist act. So okay. we're just kind of taking you on a journey of yeah. how different researchers are framing this. I think that his connection between incel violence and white supremacist violence is very interesting because there's a sure. great part of the white supremacist population that is made up of women. However, there is, generally speaking on many discussion boards about not just within the incel community, but any of these extremist beliefs, the guys are all whining about why they can't find wives. (laughs) Shocking. It's just shocking, right? Like I, I... 
uh, you know, I have all these extreme beliefs about the roles of women. I just don't understand why they're not like clawing at my, my pants. Why are they not clawing at me? <laughs> There's this TikToker that she goes on the like very conservative dating sites and starts talking to men and then like screenshots her stuff and posts it. And it's Ugh. like where she's telling them, yeah, you know, I don't, I really don't think women should be allowed to vote anymore. What do you think? <laughs> just like puts out these ridiculous, you know, this bait to them to just watch them go off. And they think they found like the perfect woman. <laughs> That's that's pretty much God God tier level trolling. Oh my God! Have, I you, know. have you seen the TikToker that is? It's a guy that's like a really really well put together guy going, and he speaks in a complete monotone. Things to say to make men mad, and <laughs> no. it's like, oh, it's just hysterical. Oh my God! Like it's so really good. really hysterical because it's really poking fun at you know traditional male role norms. And one of the things he does, he goes, "I'm six one." but I've officially changed all of my height status to 5'10", so I can freak people out when they say when they say that they're six feet. Oh my gosh. Because that is a, a huge thing in the online yeah. dating forums too, is height. So right, height right, cell. right. Height cell, all right. Get back on track, guys. Come yes, on, sorry. let's go. So there's a master's thesis that this researcher completed for his degree in computational science. So outside of yes, sociology. I'm here for it. Let's see what we could do with all of these. And this was at Linkoping University in Sweden by author Aaron Kiss. And he sought to determine whether incel online participation leads to an increase in the expression of misogynistic, harassing, nihilistic, and morally outraged messages. The research also investigated whether users become more aligned with the general perception of incels in previous scholarly work. And his goal was to determine whether active participation on the website leads to radicalization or this increased nihilism that we sort of are starting to attribute now to what radicalization actually means. Hence, you know, that feels like it's one step closer to violence. That's why it's so important. We, we talk about this. And I think we're also borrowing from terrorist acts, right? Because when we hear the term radicalization, you think people have been radicalized to ISIS or, you know, other foreign terrorist groups. So we're sort of trying to fit some of these incel puzzle pieces into that larger framing of groups that are extremist, groups that are terrorists, but does it really fit? <laughs> So the language is the same, I guess, is what I'm saying. So his study analyzed approximately 5.38 million posts published over four years on the incel.is website. So the findings from this author are, and I'm going to use a quote from this because this is very like computational sciencey language. So he reveals <laughs> you that- You just said sciencey. I love yeah, it. That's, this is so sciencey. I, I know. It. I know. What did the sciencey guy say, Dr. Shiloh? <laughs> he said, quote, that active participation on the website leads to temporal user level radicalization trajectories and increased nihilism. So okay. he crunching numbers is seeing, yes, this, this is heading in a way where the more people are participating, the more serious their posts are getting. And oh, the more okay. So he's saying that over a span of time. Yes. So the longer they're engaged is definitely related to the more like. nihilistic, the more angry they get. Yeah. So specifically wow. the duration of active participation as measured by days, okay. and then okay. the number of posted messages positively predicts the count of moral outrage, misogynistic, 
harassing and nihilistic content. I mean, it makes sense, right? Yep. I mean, that shouldn't be surprising at all, but it is a little bit jarring to think this again goes back to that idea of this echo chamber of mm -hmm. this crucible. If you stay in it, that's what you're going to become. You are what you eat. But right? You know, I always go back to our conversation with James Fitzgerald when we were talking about the Unabomber uh -huh. and incels, where he was like, from what we've seen and the research we've done at the BAU, like it's the quiet ones you have to worry about. Like the ones that are in the background watching all of this happen, not necessarily the ones that are the loudest barkers. Right. So well, um, look at Timothy McVeigh. That's a perfect yes. example of somebody that was, yes, he was pronounced in his beliefs and he was talking about them, but he was exactly what you said. He was in the background watching and planning. That's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think we can make too many conclusions of like, oh, the guy that's posting the most and is the loudest is the, is the guy that's going to go commit the next mass attack. I always say this and I know it's so frustrating, but we don't know what we don't know. Right. So the guy who's sitting in the background watching all of it happen, stewing, getting stirred up, collecting his grievances, right. but never posting about it. We just don't know about that person. So it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah. But I still think this is interesting. Overall, this study sheds light on the potential negative effects of participating in online communities that promote this harmful and hateful ideology. And it highlights the importance of monitoring and addressing such behavior, potentially to, at the very least, just prevent the spread of radicalization and nihilism. So it's interesting. And again, I, I'm here for other disciplines weighing in on this from their different perspectives too. So I want to sort of carve out a little bit of time here for talking about potential pursuit of treatment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just thinking out loud, we don't force people into treatment, right? I mean, right. or, or if, for those of you that have listened to several, several of our episodes, particularly the one about the conservatorship of mm -hmm. Britney Spears, mm -hmm. as I've said, and this is also part of my, my day job, you know, we don't just lock people up for having mental illness, nor should we. We absolutely shouldn't. And, and our, our country, whether you see it as a shining example or a rusty bucket with a lot of flaws in it, you know, yeah, both of yeah. these things can exist simultaneously, right? But we do have the embedded into our foundation of our democracy is freedom of speech. And even people with poor social skills, have the right to free speech. And that doesn't protect you or prevent you from experiencing the consequences of your actions. Free speech means you get to talk about oppression by the government or your opinion about what's going on in the government. But you can't go out and say, this woman is a horrible gash and she did this to me by looking at me and I'm going to take this kind of action. You, know, you, you, you can't say that and not expect consequences because that could be considered to be a criminal threat. Right. depending on on how how serious it is but our system now is not really set up to look at all of these potential statements that are going to be made and fit them within to a rubric and then determine how dangerous that individual is going to be and then to mandate treatment. Basically, sure. you can lead people to water. Here is something for you to nurture yourself on. We think that your life is going to be better. Are you willing to take the leap? And like I said, 
I think I referred to it in the previous episode as the horrible familiar. It's what we talk about in clinical terms, mm -hmm. that if you have found your sense of self and your sense of community within an ideology, no matter how toxic that ideology is, it has become part of your identity until you decide that it's time to excise that part from yourself, right? So that's just a big way of saying, wow, what do we do? Because people can always tell us to go pound sand. We can go knock on the door and go, hey, you know what? We just got notification from somebody in Indiana that saw your Instagram post and it was reported to the FBI. The FBI reported it to the county. The county reported it to the city. The city reported it to their specific law enforcement. Law enforcement went to their major crimes division. And now we're going to do community outreach. And here I am showing up at your front door saying, hey, how can I help? Yeah. Sometimes that can be welcomed and other times it can be double bird in the face, slam the door, fuck you, don't ever come back. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the reality. Well, of and many even of these cases. it is. It certainly is. And thank you for laying that out because I think we we can have all these preconceived notions of what it should look like and how the right. systems should be perfect and and play out, especially as we consider more ways to implement mental health into yeah. some of these traditionally like law enforcement systems. But I think when you said you can lead a horse to water, it struck me that look at the I work I, that- Actually, I said, I think I, I completely messed up that metaphor and said you could lead a person to water and then I tried to fix it. So oh, did you? sorry, folks. Yeah. Oh, but yes, okay. We're going to go, well, we're gonna go what with what Shiloh says. It's like, you can lead a horse to water. <laughs> you can lead a horse or a person to water, whatever. We get the you analogy. You to water. <laughs> But he prefers mimosas. But he um, will drink it because he wants to stay <laughs> hydrated and retain his youthful glow. There you Jesus. go. <laughs> Here we go. So I think about the work you and I did in sex offender treatment. And Oof, yeah. there's a case yeah. where you can mandate people that are legally bound to go to treatment as part of being on parole. They can go back to prison. <laughs> because they committed a crime. Because they committed a crime. Right, yes. right, right. This is totally after the fact. So yes, apples and oranges, but there they are. And we can only work with what they give us, right? Still even, in that Even room. within mandated treatment. Yes. yes. You can only work with what you're given. Right. So we've had those clients that are, if they could give us double middle fingers, they would, but instead they just sit there with their lips sealed and we can look at the documents about their offense and their behaviors and maybe some statements they made in the past. But if they're not in the moment giving us the thoughts in their head, so we know which way to help work with them to reduce recidivism, we kind of got nothing. We can talk at them and maybe it's sinking in, but they're not going to make any big drides in therapy. So hence the challenges and the challenges specific to forensic psychology and treatment and just the systems at large. But yeah. I think, you know, as we're going to give you another case study in a second here, but I think as we kind of reflect back on all of the research that we've covered and everything that's out there, and honestly, there is so much now on incels that we really hit the highlights. There's a lot of other stuff out there. Some of it's little like, okay, like that's interesting, but doesn't like add too much to this conversation. Yeah, the um, thing that worries me about that mm -hmm. is that there's more research, which is great. I have no problem with that. I love that there's collaboration and consultation within the community of research on this yeah. phenomenon. That's so important. What really worries me is in that slow, like the water level has risen to where now it's going to start spilling over into the common vernacular. 
Mm. and mm-hmm. people start making assumptions like it, it's sort of like the mental health tiktok phenomenon yeah. where people are logging on and saying did you know that 30 percent of like and i love the like i think she may be eastern european the psychologist that oh, jumps on and goes yeah, no, no, no 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 oh my god she's the best i she's love so her good. we she's love like, her come at me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this this is another this is another phenomenon like this where you know major talking heads who are incredibly wealthy and have been on television for years as content creators will just start jumping on throwing the yeah. incel label at any right. attack that occurs and that doesn't help that no. muddies the water. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think where I'm at currently with what data we have is I find that when we look at the individuals in the incel community or who identify as incel who do act out violently. I certainly put them more in the category of what we're dealing with, like with our school shooters and with our other mass attackers, right? Rather than the camp, you know, organized extremist groups. So going back to what you were saying, treatment wise, what does this mean? It means earlier intervention looking at these signs, making sure these threat management and assessment teams are in place. But that gets tricky when people are outside of school and outside of a workplace, because other than like, like you're kind of it, (laughs) like if it's just the random person that doesn't have a system around them or an environment around them, it always comes down to someone in their world has to notice something and has to report it. Right. And then it will trigger someone like you to go out there and follow up. But yeah, I certainly think, you know, when we look at mass attackers, we got to look at everyone's motives. And yeah. yeah, maybe a few are kind of in this grievance world of inseldom, but then like the other 95% or whatever, I'm just throwing a number out. That's not a hard number, but maybe the rest of the majority, you know, we could find a dozen more categories that we could kind of chop them up into. But I think the base information is the same. It's the depression, it's the loneliness, it's the anxiety mixed in with some sort of grievance holding that is fueling the anger and high suicidal ideation where they're going to die by suicide or suicide by cop. And they're going to take other people out with them. Yep. We talk about that, that fluidity between suicidality and homicidality. That's always a huge, huge danger marker right there. Yeah. So the research isn't perfect. It's sort of exactly where I would expect it to be right now in this evolution of kind of the larger world, even knowing what the hell an incel is. So academic work is always playing catch up, right? Yes. to the the phenomenon, but also I think in this specific area, because of the violent attacks, sparking the interest, sparking the curiosity, sparking the research, it also right off the bat sparks the criminal justice system and government and law enforcement that was looking at this first. And they kind of got to put out their opinions about what it is first. So the world of academia is now catching up and disputing some of that information that was put out. And especially, you know, sort of like this is doomsday, the, you know, one of these researchers even used the term epidemic, just the overall dangerousness. So this, this feels like researchers are now kind of balancing that back out and going, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, let's see what this really is and how often this really happens. Anything you want to add to your overall? 
Just thoughts on this, Scott? No, I think we've got more to talk about after our next section. We're going to give a, another yeah. case and then we're going to give you some more of our, our heady thoughts. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. uh, <laughs> right, right. So on this note, I mean, we don't really, as a whole, as a collective, we don't really consider that in seldom was a thing before like 2014-ish when a quite notorious incident happened. And not that they need any glorification uh, anymore or any historical context to their story for their sake per se, but you and I thought it was important that we look at a really early case that we came across in doing our research that predates the internet. And what we're doing here, the purpose is to see what similarities might have been at play with this person's story and what we know. And, you know, also is like what sort of camp or category does this even fall into? On December 6, 1989, a tragic event unfolded at the École Polytechnique at the University de Montreal. A young man entered classroom Room number 230 armed with a hunting knife and a Ruger Mini 14 rifle. He ordered the men and the women to separate and then commanded the men to leave the room. With only the women left in the room, the young man loudly asserted, I am fighting feminism before opening fire from left to right, killing six of the nine women present. He then proceeded on to other locations in the school, leaving a complete trail of devastation in his wake. And again, this was 1989. So after an incredibly long 20-minute rampage, the attacker had successfully shot 27 people, resulting in the death of 14 of those victims, all of whom were women. At this point, the attacker turned the gun on himself, muttering, oh shit, and then pulling the trigger. This horrific event went on to be known as the Montreal Massacre, which was the deadliest shooting in Canadian history until April 2020, when a gunman in Nova Scotia perpetrated 16 attacks over a 13-hour killing spree. Horrible in itself. Mia Bloom, who is a professor at Georgia State University, has written extensively on this in a really wonderful paper that you can find in our show notes. And she asserts that if the attack had happened today, the attacker would have been considered an incel. And while his motives may never be fully understood, his actions serve as a real reminder of the strong, strong danger of misogyny and the need to continue efforts to combat gender-based violence. What we do know about him without giving his name is that he was born the son of a Canadian nurse and an Algerian father who was a businessman. His father was noted to engage in intimate partner violence towards his wife. He was known to be very contemptuous of women, and he basically abandoned the attacker and his mother when the attacker was aged seven. And this began a long history and a downward spiral of the individual who became the perpetrator of this violence. Yeah. So despite what we know about this attack and perhaps the nature of his motivations, the Canadian and world media largely overlooked this aspect of the tragedy. Maybe we just didn't have the words for it back then, especially with someone saying, I'm fighting feminism. I mean, 1989 might not yeah. Have known how important that is, or is this just, you know, a guy off his rocker? Because how many sort of school shootings or university shootings were there back then, especially this nature? I mean, this sounds like it could be happening today, right? Gunmen entering classrooms. Yep. So instead, many people just dismissed the attacker as a madman, failing to connect his violence to his hateful and misogynistic attitudes towards women, while there was an acknowledgement at the time that his actions 
were a clear example of at least femicide, right? But it would be years until people put together, you know, this term incel. So every year on December 6, Canadians come together to honor the victims of the Montreal massacre and other femicide victims on the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. For a rant. What do you think? Do you think this is like the first incel attack? Because that's how it's framed in some of the articles and postings we've we've come across. Well, I think Ms. Bloom makes a really good point that this could be definitely sort of a precursor or a progenitor for incel type ideology, much like, you know, Fitz mm-hmm. was saying that Kaczynski absolutely fits that as no, well. No, we said that and he oh, agreed s- with us. Oh, okay. Sorry. We theorized that. <laughs> <laughs> so there, Fitz. Yes. Just- but I mean, it is interesting that, you know, that this is someone who, in comparison to the Toronto van mm. incident, mm-hmm. that particular individual who did identify as an incel hits a lot of the same developmental and life challenges that the Montreal massacre individual does. Yeah. So we're talking about problems in school, interpersonal challenges, application to be in either law enforcement or the military and then getting rejected, trying to follow a particular academic pathway in college, not being able to do it and having to move to something that was not what they wanted to do, as well as then focusing all of their problems as being a result of women working in non-traditional roles or women marginalizing men. Mm-hmm. So This perpetrator of the Montreal massacre does have a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists post facto doing forensic evaluations on him. And the diagnoses have a range of a personality disorder to psychosis to attachment disorders. But like you said, there's now been decades since this occurred. But I would say, yeah, I would say probably even more so than Kaczynski. You know, Kaczynski mm-hmm. had a lot going on and he met some of the rubric, but this is, I think Ms. Bloom is really onto something. Yeah. I mean, it, clearly there's the targeted victims. I mean, you can't get more clear than that. I mean, absolutely. And I think it's when I was reading about this story, I thought, what an interesting evolution once we did get the term incel and all of the little nuances that come with the ideology with not just hating the women and the Stacys, but also the Chads, right? So it's not like this guy had that information from this echo chamber of web-based forums to go, oh, you know what? All you preppy, good looking dudes, I'm going to kill you too, because you're part of the problem too. He was just like laser focused on the women. So- I think it it certainly fits with just kind of looking backwards and kind of seeing what other attacks can fit in this. Clearly, it stands out because it takes place at a school, clearly because it's a mass shooting and in a country where that doesn't happen as often as here. It does happen in Canada. It's not like Canada is free from mass shootings. I think that's a misnomer. So I think... What I don't like is that we have to go back and kind of label a first attack. Like, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it kind of sits unwell with me, where we talk about events that have the highest kill count or, you know, this or that, you know what I I mean? I didn't think of that, but that's, that's a very good point. We just want to be so careful about how we frame things and how the media frames things is not always great, obviously, as we know. So I think we just need to be careful of that. And if, if at least 
first I'm getting to say, like, it kind of feels weird to say, oh yeah, this is the first one again. Like, what is, what does that mean? And what are we tapping into? So if we can learn from it, lessons learned, and interestingly, how does it fit into the research that we've come to in these two past episodes, then it's worth looking at for sure. But yeah, I I don't know if we went back and looked at many mass attacks pre-internet, how many of them would have some threads of anti-feminism, misogynistic motivations. Yeah, because I think that depending on what you're looking at diagnostically, there's also going to go through history. We go back through history and there's going to be examples of, you know, yeah, of course. You know, very extremist thinking that focuses on whatever is the easiest target, and that might be women. But we don't know. We won't have enough data to know if that person had interpersonal challenges or you yeah, know. Yeah, we don't need to get are... crazy and be like, oh, the Salem witch trials was the first incel attack. Right. <laughs> exactly. Know? Although, <gasps> Ooh, no. if somebody wants to write a dissertation on that, I will Stop read it. the shit out of that. I would love that. That would be very. But cool. But you have to take me to Salem, Massachusetts, to do the research with you. Right. Yes. <laughs> All right. So just some closing housekeeping since we jumped right in as if you could forget, but we don't want you to forget our May 20th live show is coming up in just over 10 days from when this drops. So we are pulling out all the stops and so excited to just see you guys. So yeah. And if folks, if you're local and you're interested in coming, or even if you're only local and you can't come, or if you're not local and you can't come, please consider, this is like our first, we did, we did a live event with Rebecca Sebastian. That Mm -hmm. was sort of our, our try right before COVID. It was our first effort and it really worked out well. It was small. It was manageable. This is something that's literally three times that size. And We really want to get people there because we think it's going to be a blast. So if you could please take our social media post and forward it, post it on your social media to get us out there a little bit. We don't generally ask for this kind of support because we're we're a smaller podcast, but we would love to get a lot of people there to see not only what we feel like we could bring to it, but also our wonderful colleagues at LA yes. Meekly and Hollywood Paranormal. We just love them so much. And this is going to be, a, we're just going to have a, a blast. Well, and, you know, we are so grateful to the Heritage Square Museum and- oh, yeah a good portion of this profit is going to go straight back to the museum. So Scott and I, the podcast, are regular donators to the museum. They have just been so kind and treated us so well. And, you know, we feel like Corey, their executive director, is part of our family. She's part yeah. of our Patreon family. Yeah. <laughs> but she's also been a wonderful mentor to my daughter and is just a lovely, lovely person that loves history, loves Los Angeles, loves preservation. And we couldn't think of a better way for our money to go back into our community with this being an LA-based and highlighting LA-based podcasts. So super excited. Go to Eventbrite. You can either search LA Not So Confidential, that's who's hosting it, or you can look up the title, which is Macabre Mansions and Haunted History, and you should be able to find the tickets. The links will be in the show notes. And then, of course, we'll be seeing you guys in London soon as well. So not only will we be presenting on the main stage at CrimeCon UK, of course, we'll have our booth, but Friday night, Friday, June 9th, we'll be doing a meetup at Bike Shed London. 
super cool venue with Aaron and Justin from Generation Y and just come by, come by, hang out. If you can't go to the event, come by and hang out. So we have so many opportunities to see you guys. We cannot wait to kick off summer. All right. Well, with that, thanks for hanging in there. Thanks for revisiting this topic with us. Always here to bring you on a journey, even if it's years later to update you on research. You know, we are, we're good for it. And we will have our vintage episode next week, followed by our documentary review. And with that, we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Thanks, guys. Bye, folks. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.